I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending February 12th. Automakers are beginning to introduce more safety features that can temporarily take over for drivers. And gradually, more and more vehicles will be able to drive themselves. However, there's little clarity for drivers what each feature actually does, when, and under what circumstances. When it isn't clear who's responsible for the vehicle, the driver or the car itself, that's described as mode confusion. The concept is well known to aviators, but to hardly anyone else. This week, we talk with former Navy pilot and professor of electrical and computer engineering at Duke University, Missy Cummings, about the potential dangers to motorists if automakers fail to plan for mode confusion. Before we get to our discussion on mode confusion, here's a quick rundown on some of the stories we have in EE Times this week. Columnist Don Scanson writes about the revival of a funky lensing antenna technology for 5G applications, while editor Maurizio De Paolo Emilio writes about a company that has devised a new approach to RF filters to handle all the increasing number of different wireless frequencies that every smartphone is obliged to connect via. You might also want to read our story on why Renaissance is spending nearly $6 billion to buy Dialogic. Spoiler alert, it's all about the market for the Internet of Things. Find those and other stories at www.eetimes.com. If you're on our podcast webpage, there are links on your left. Readers of EE Times and listeners of this podcast are well aware that even though there have been some truly remarkable demonstrations of self-driving vehicles, self-driving technology is still far too immature and we won't be able to rely on it completely for many years to come. A few years back, Tesla Motors leapt ahead of the traditional automotive industry with its autopilot feature, which is capable of partially automated driving, until it isn't. Though Tesla seems happy to let people infer that its vehicles are sufficiently self-driving, they are not. There have been multiple instances of Tesla drivers taking their hands off the wheel and then crashing, and a common thread running through many of those crashes is that the driver thought it was okay to let the car drive itself when it was not okay to do so. Other automakers are trying to catch up to Tesla, but more versed in safety regulations, they are doing so slowly and deliberately, and they're more accurately referring to their automated features as driver assist. Now, as vehicles take more control, more often, and under more circumstances, driver's responsibility diminishes. Each stage where there's a shift in the balance of driver control versus automation is considered a mode. Drivers who are uninformed or misguided by marketers are unlikely to recognize what mode their vehicles are in, nor what their responsibilities are for any particular mode. The transition from one mode to another is likely to be even less understood. Worse, vehicles might take control or relinquish control unexpectedly. Not understanding the different modes nor the attendant shifts in responsibility, nor when mode shifts are likely to occur, defines what mode confusion is. 
and mode confusion has the potential to be as dangerous as it sounds. The auto industry doesn't seem to be dealing with the issue of mode confusion, nor are the electronics companies that are providing driver-assist technologies. Is it a real problem? Consider Cadillac's ad during the Super Bowl, which touted an upgrade of its Super Cruise feature, which allows hands-free driving. The ad featured Edward Scissorhands, who naturally would have a hard time driving, what with having scissors for hands and all. Now, in real life, Cadillac recommends that Super Cruise only be used for highway driving and only on highways that it has thoroughly mapped already. And yet, the ad depicted Edward driving around suburban streets near his home. The ad is troublesome because it seems to be creating mode confusion. And it's not just that there might be a potential problem someday. We ran a story on mode confusion, and as an example, we mentioned how automakers are introducing a feature that makes sure that drivers don't inadvertently drift out of their lanes and crash into other vehicles. Well, great, but when does that kick in? Does it kick in consistently? Does it kick in under different circumstances in different cars? How do you know when it relinquishes control? We raised those questions as a hypothetical. Following is a response from one of our readers who told us, quote, I have experienced this myself. It's unsettling when you think the vehicle is doing the steering and suddenly it turns out it had already turned control over to you. Some OEMs layer their system so that you lose the lane centering component, but the adaptive cruise control component remains. At some point you realize, wow, I just drove the last few miles. I was supposed to be doing the steering, but I wasn't, and neither was the car. Yeah, that's not so good. Our story on mode confusion was written by EE Times global editor Junko Yoshida, who's been covering automotive technologies for EE Times for several years. One of the world's key researchers sounding the alarm about mode confusion is Missy Cummings. If there's one place where mode confusion is well-defined, it's in aviation. Cummings, it just so happens, is a former Navy fighter pilot. She's also a professor at Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering and is the director of the Humans and Autonomy Laboratory and Duke Robotics. As an expert on how humans interface with autonomous systems, she's taken on Elon Musk for what she feels is his irresponsibility with self-driving technology. In a 2017 tweet, she wrote, It's hypocrisy run amok when Elon Musk calls for a ban on killer AI and robots when his Tesla is the only AI-embedded car killing people. Yeah, she seemed like the person to call to explain mode confusion. Here's Junko Yoshida with Missy Cummings. Could you define what mode confusion is? Yeah, so mode confusion is any time that an operator thinks that a system that has some kind of embedded autonomy or automation is in one mode and actually it's in another mode. And this really came to light in the 1990s with a lot of Airbus accidents where there was a lot of fighting between the pilot and the automation. The pilot thought that the aircraft was doing one thing, it was actually doing a different thing. Sometimes it's the design of the system that causes it. Sometimes it's the feedback to the pilot. So in one particular case, 
there was like one tiny button and you could, if you press that button and the light was very small, it wasn't really obvious. In my own personal experience, um, I saw this firsthand where one uh, of my peers was returning from a live weapons area uh, to back to the aircraft carrier and he forgot to save his weapons. And then uh, right before he got back to the carrier, his commanding officer who was in the other plane decided that they would um, do a fun 1v1, which is like a dog fight. And uh, because my friend, I like to call him Spider, it's not his real call sign. Uh, he, he got the jump on the commanding officer and got into a position to fire. And there's this really uh, compelling shoot cue and it, so the system would scream at you to shoot, but right beneath it, you needed to make sure that the letters S-I-M were beneath it to show you were in simulated mode. And oh. so he thought in his mind, he thought he was in simulated mode. He didn't double check. And the, and the font was so small. And when, you, when you're doing a dogfight, it's really rough. And so he pulled the trigger, think he was in simulated mode. The missile went off the rail. And uh, whenever you do that, in the F-18, the plane turns its cameras on to tattle on you later. And so you could actually see the missile going after the commanding officer. And right before it hit him and killed him, it just fell beneath the airplane. So, I mean, mode confusion is real and it's yeah. really easy to do, even for people who are experts and highly trained like fighter pilots. So, you know, when we fast forward to autonomous cars or any kind of self-driving and or um, L2 plus ADAS, Right. It is so easy for people to think that the car is in autopilot because they selected autopilot. Mm -hmm. And I've seen this firsthand many, many times where uh, the system either just shuts itself off and gives you no warning. Um, the light, the autopilot, the little blue light was on. And then all of a sudden it's just not on anymore and you got no warning. Or occasionally it will give you a beep, but the beep is so muted and low that if you're engaged in conversation with someone or if you're distracted in the very least, you know, it's not obvious to you. So almost in the same way that my former um, fighter pilot friend Spider didn't really just notice a very small cue in the world. This happens all the time with autopilot, I think. This reminds me of your tweet a few years ago in which you stated, quote, Tesla's autopilot easily causes mode confusion. It is unreliable and unsafe. Nitsa should require Tesla to turn it off, unquote. I understand you and your students tested Tesla's autopilot extensively just before the COVID lockdown last year. Tell us a little bit about that. Sometimes it will warn you, you need to put your hand. Sometimes it will give you the visual cue. Yeah. Sometimes it will give you the visual cue and the oral cue. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't give you any cue at all. And so, I, and, and I, you know, I tend to pick on Tesla a lot for autopilot just because they're the furthest ones out there, you know, making, you know, they're pushing their way forward and probably a lot like Airbus, Tesla is going to make mistakes just like Airbus made mistakes. And the rest of the industry benefits from one other company being out in front. So they don't make the same mistakes. But, you know, I was actually hard today. I heard that Tesla was finally going to do the recalls on the display issues, right? So did you hear about this, that the displays, they were uh, planned obsolescence? 
Was it would go black or the, the go yeah, dark? Yeah, it would just or, die. The display yeah. would die, and, and you couldn't access several uh, critical features like defrost or whatever. And so they actually agreed to do a recall. So it, it does show you that Tesla can, when motivated, uh, they can actually take safety seriously and do the right thing. Yeah. So I think that mode confusion is still so new to people because, you know, previously up to now, this was something that only elite pilots, commercial mm -hmm. pilots, maybe military fighter pilots. That was something that people with a lot of training dealt with. And we, we get training specifically on how not to let that happen. So I think the jury's still out about what we're going to do about the, uh, the car. Yeah, so th that was my second question. I mean, how can we catch ourselves that we are confused? Or how would a car catch that driver is actually confused? Well, if I were uh, the queen of the world, um, every time that autopilot or any system like autopilot turned itself off, yeah, I'd have an, a big red siren in the car going off, you know, woo, 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 make sure, you know, we're off. Uh, and so... You know, I mean, I'm only half kidding there. So it is, I think, the responsibility back to the manufacturers. You've got to make sure that when that thing shuts off, that it is very obvious to the user that it is shutting off. And I think one of the problems that's happening is that I'm not even sure Tesla understands the all the causes of conditions uh, that could cause, you know, result in this turning itself off. When we did our live testing last year, the car each we tested three different cars multiple times on the same car and no car performed the same way two times in a row on any test right so so i think that's actually one of the problems to me that if i were the head of engineering at tesla i would be asking so why do we not have more consistent alerting about when autopilot is or is not on and what's causing it to drop out if it's not um, actively alerting someone that it turned off. To me, that logic is pretty simple, you know, and, and Cadillac has with their um, Super Cruise, they have some nice warnings on the steering wheel, like a big red, like, ah, something's <laughs> wrong, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. And so yeah. I think that more needs to be done to make sure that people are alerted, but also the engineering needs to happen to make sure that companies understand what's causing it. So that inconsistency is worrisome to you, right? Yeah, we saw in the test that we did last year, uh, when we had a driver pretend as if he was completely distracted and Tesla goes through this cycle of giving a driver three alerts before it shuts itself off and pulls the car over, so one of the things that we found out that was very clear was there was extreme variability in what initiated the first alarm. But once the first alarm happened, the sequence was extremely reliable. So that suggests to us that there's something wrong in the perception system, that the perception system is not aware that it's uh, well, either it because it, it there's something that's aware. So the part of the perception system turns off because autopilot turns off, but somewhere there's not a closing of that feedback loop to say if the perception system is no longer seeing the world correctly and it knows that autopilot can handle it, why are we not then consistently alerting the, the driver right. that there is a problem? I was talking to Phil Copeman at Edge Case Research the other day. He explained that soon we will have a car that can operate 
in three or four different automation modes. For example, uh, there can be uh, active cruise control, lane keeping assist on highway, or traffic jam pilot in congested areas, or it could be self-parking, and so on and so forth. So we can think of scenarios in which the same car offers various degrees of automation to a driver on different types of roads. When I think of that, wouldn't that be really confusing? Oh, yes. Well, again, you know, pilots get annual check rides and all sorts of formal training. And there's no requirement whatsoever for any driver to get any training when they buy any car, regardless of what the car is. And so, uh, honestly, I am not surprised that we, I'm, I'm surprised we don't see more accidents because and, and indeed we do, like there will be a lot of accidents that people talk about. You'll hear, hear that they're reported. They'll say autopilot did it. And then Tesla will pull the tapes, you know, they pull the black box digital recordings and then they can come back and say, yeah, autopilot wasn't on. You're the driver, you're responsible. So indeed, you know, Tesla is hundred percent right when they pull that. But when you hear this dichotomy, it means that the driver thought autopilot was on, right? right? And right. so this is one of these weird latent safety cases that it's difficult to get ground truth data on uh, because there, you know, people are having accidents. They do claim autopilot was on and then autopilot wasn't on. And then so Tesla is off the legal hook. I don't think that that means they're off the um, design and safety hook because indeed, clearly there was some problem somewhere. And, you know, and if we were not, uh, if we did not have a rich aviation history in this, I I might give Tesla a pass, but I can't give Tesla a pass uh, because we have a rich aviation history and I've given a talk to all their engineers at Tesla and talked right. about this to wow. Tesla. Wow. To tell them they've got to watch out for these issues. Yeah. So, I mean, if you are asked to add, you know, apply your own experience, your own knowledge, you know, from the aviation industry to the autopilot of the day or automation, automated features that are becoming increasingly available in vehicles, what advice do you give? I mean, what are the things that the, you know, design engineers should look for? Well, the first piece of advice I would give to Tesla or any other automotive manufacturer is if your manual says you should not use these tools in various operational domains, then you shouldn't be allowed to use those tools in different operational domains. So I think making it clear that, for example, Super Cruise, you can only use on mapped highways um, and interstates inside of its system. Okay, they're very, they're very clear about that. And indeed, we've tried to trick it and you can't. So good, good for them to, to hold the driver accountable. So beyond making sure that you're in the correct operational domain, you've got to have a direct link between autopilot on, off, and signal to the driver, and not just any signal to the driver, but a very clear visual audio, and in a perfect world, haptic. I would like to have the seat vibrate to make sure that the, the driver knew that there was a big state change. This is really important going forward in the future because 
these hybrid modes of partial autonomy here and there under certain um, operational domains, for example, Audi's traffic jam pilot, you know, if we're going to let those systems do a slow crawl all by themselves, which, which I'm actually a big fan of, you need to be able to make it clear to the driver when it's their time to take control. And the drivers uh, of all cars need to be habituated that a certain set of signals means there's been a big state change. And so I'm also a big fan of us coming at getting the industry to come together to develop a standard. You know, I hate to make it sound like we need to train rats in mazes, but you know, we've been, there are good reasons to do that. Safety belts, for example, we need, it just needs to become a habit that safety is the seatbelt. We put it on and all of industry has agreed that there's this annoying no seatbelt alert that comes on if your seatbelts are not on and there's passenger weight detected in the seats. So why can't we do that? And why can't we come to an agreed upon standard that if any kind of automation is on and then it turns off for whatever reason that there's an immediate notification of a driver in a certain tripartite way that makes it very clear that the car is no longer operating under automated control. Right. So standard in this case, you're talking about the uh, certain standard everybody should, every car company should adhere to in order to make it very uh, visible or uh, uh, you can actually feel it. The, uh, the, 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 this really needs to be, the, the experience of the alert needs to be standardized. Is it standardized? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I would say you could tie that into even things like automated cruise control or <clears throat> any kind of advanced cruise control. Like when that thing kicks off, you know, you, you get whatever that state change is. You're like, oh, okay, I'm in charge. It needs right. to be very clear, I'm in charge. Uh, not that you weren't in charge before, but uh, now I'm really in charge, in charge and I need to make sure because the car is no longer controlling whatever axis of control I thought it was. Do you think the current generation of driver's monitoring system can actually fix the problem? Or do we need to develop some kind of a different way to monitor the state of the mind of the driver? Oh my gosh, we just do not have enough time in the day to go to go in depth into that question. It's really yeah. difficult um, because it is very difficult to, to detect with high degrees of certainty that you're paying attention because I, I run eye tracking studies, driver simulator studies of all kinds, sizes, shapes, and uh, you can your eyes can be on the road. We can fix your pupil gaze and know that it's on the road and you are nowhere in your mind, right? So your eyes can be on the road and your brain can be a thousand miles away. So until we actually can figure that out, which we as a academia is not at all close to solving that problem, I would put that right up there with cold fusion, uh, knowing where your mind is at, right? So it's a big research uh, problem. So understanding that we can never get to 100% detection of whether or not you're paying attention, I would first say torque monitoring systems need to be abolished. This is just not, in no way, shape, or form is this even a close enough proxy for attention. So I, I think we should get rid of those at, not just nationally, but internationally. Yep. And then the camera-based monitoring systems are then all that's really practically left. They're not perfect. They're not even, uh, I wouldn't even put them in the excellent category, but they're at least good enough for now mm -hmm. until we can start figuring out better ways to make sure that people are attending to the scene. 
So, uh, you know, and even Tesla, you know, they have a driver facing camera for uh, a lot of the cars that they haven't turned on yet. And so I think Tesla will eventually Mm -hmm. come out with their own camera based driver monitoring system. But uh, uh, there's no guarantee, even if you're monitoring the driver with the camera, though, that you can make sure they're paying attention. All right. I must say the uh, vehicle's inability to accurately monitor a driver's state is a big concern because in the future, you know, as a driver, you know, I want the vehicle to catch my mistakes and bring the car to a safe state automatically if necessary. Yeah, well, I think systems like AEB for um, last minute threat detection or Mm -hmm. last second threat detection, I think those are critical because they don't really, it doesn't really matter whether you're paying attention or not in those cases. (laughs) If the car can detect a a, dramatic closing bearing, decreasing range situation, it just needs to to bring you to a stop. So I think there's some partial solutions, but Google X, now Waymo, funded me many years ago to do a, um, we uh, tested a functional near-infrared spectroscopy system. So we were actually looking at blood oxygenation in your brain to see if we could actually even hook your blood oxygenation uh, to how well you were paying attention. And, you know, EEGs, the um, electroencephalogram, you know, they won't do it. The eye tracking can't do it. The blood oxygenation in the brain can't do it. I'm not saying that we'll never get there, but we're going to have to have a substantial improvement in sensors before we can actually get to a point where we're able to use these reliably. And then the cost is going to have to come down. You are listening to Duke University professor Missy Cummings with EE Times Global Editor Junko Yoshida. You can read Junko's story on mode confusion on our homepage. There's a link to it on this podcast episode's webpage as well. It's called Mode Confusion Vexes Drivers and Car Makers. You might also want to check out another of Junko's articles from a couple weeks back that first identified the problem of mode confusion. It's called New AV User's Guide to Address L3 Puzzle. Just about every week, Except when we don't, we celebrate the anniversaries of great moments in technology history. We invite you to come along for a traipse down memory lane. We are going to set our Wayback Machine to February 14th, 2005. It seems as if YouTube is as old as the internet, but the business was registered by Chad Hurley, Steve Chen, and Jad Karim only 16 years ago. I have t-shirts twice that old. There are competing stories about where the idea for YouTube came from. The official story is that the founders wanted to share videos from a dinner party. Kareem contradicted that, saying it was because they couldn't find videos of Janet Jackson's famous wardrobe malfunction during the 2004 Super Bowl halftime show. Hurley and Chen contradicted the dinner party story, saying they wanted to found a dating service based on hot or not. Uh, the basic concept for which was also part of Facebook's creation myth. Though YouTube was founded in February, the site didn't start slinging videos for another six months. YouTube's official commercial debut was in November of 2005. In between, in April, the first video uploaded was a 16-second short featuring an incredibly baby-faced cream at the San Diego Zoo. It's been viewed 
over 150 million times. All right, so here we are, one of the uh, elephants. And the cool thing about these guys is that, is that they have really, really, really long um, fronts, and that's, that's cool. And that's pretty much all there is to say. All there is to say? He was kind of wrong about that. At last count, there were well over 1.4 billion, with a B, videos uploaded to the site. YouTube definitely encouraged the creation of user-generated content, a trend that began to really take off a few years later once smartphones began commonly incorporating the capability to capture video. YouTube is now said to be the second most visited site on the internet, after Google's search page. And yay for Google, because Google bought YouTube in 2006 for what now seems like the bargain price of $1.65 billion. YouTube can be a time-sucking distraction, but it's also a trove of extraordinary depth and breadth. You can find everything from what's said to be the first appearance on film of a U.S. president, William McKinley from 1896, to clips of Esther Williams synchronized swimming with Tom and Jerry, to a smoking performance of Ain't That Peculiar in 1972 by the nearly forgotten all-female rock band Fanny. Yeah, so I guess it's mostly a time suck. But still. And that is a wrap for the weekly briefing for the week ending February 12th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us, via our website at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts. You'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. This podcast was produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.